was a pretty controversial 20th century theologian. But near the end of his life, he was, he was in a, a kind of a public forum, public setting, and, and um, someone asked him, how do you summarize Christianity? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, and I just I thought of that as we were singing um, that hymn, that, you know, these, that hymn, the things that we're going to kind of look at this evening, they're, they're, so, they're so familiar to us. Um, but I think as you get, as you get deeper in, into life, you know, and you get kind of farther down the road and closer and closer to the, you know, the inevitable, um, fewer things become increasingly precious, right? The number of things that become really precious to you become fewer and fewer and fewer. And um, the cross, uh, you know, obviously is the center of of all those things. So here's what I'd like to do this evening. Um, I want to just do a quick little review of the book. Um, and then, and then highlight just a few things from, uh, from Hebrews 9, 13 to 28, and then uh, hopefully leave um, 15 or so minutes for you at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at doing that. I, I, I want to try and do it um, every week, and am rarely successful, but I'm going to try um, and try again to leave some time for you to ask questions or make comments. Um, so just kind of by way of review, what I've been suggesting about this book is that we, that we listen to it, uh, and certainly we read it, but it has this sermonic quality to it, and we've, we've sort of said that there's a, if, if you were to think of it as a sermon, um, the text of the sermon would be the first four verses, the excellence of Jesus, and then you'd have, you'd have in good homiletical form and fashion, you'd have three points of exposition. The first being that Jesus is more excellent than the angels, Hebrews 1, 5 through 2, 18. The second point, Jesus is more excellent than Moses and Joshua, Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 13. And then the third point of exposition is Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 10, 18, which is the section that we are in right now. So we're in this third sort of major section, and then um, the last section of the book really is application, and the, the, the strong admonition in, the, in the, uh, the last section of the letter is, is basically to cling to Jesus in the way that the great saints of the faith enumerated for us in, in Hebrews 11 did. It's an admonition to, to persevere in faith. And then, but then You'll remember that throughout this, um, throughout this sermon, there are these these little points at which the the author, the writer, or the preacher exhorts and admonishes and encourages. So, so you know, the letter is not just a, a kind of a a theological diatribe or something like that. It really is filled with these pastoral admonitions, pastoral exhortations, which is what 
good preaching is supposed to do. It's supposed to encourage. It's supposed to admonish. It's supposed to, you're supposed to apply the stuff that's being, um, that's being presented to you. So that's just, you know, that's just a kind of a feel for, for the letter. And so what I've encouraged you to do is just keep, keep reading it, keep listening to it, let it kind of do its work on you. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, let it have that sort of sermonic effect. And uh, we're currently in, again, this last section, Jesus more, is more excellent than Melchizedek and Aaron, chapter 4, verses 14 through 10, 18. And the particular portion of this that we're looking at this evening is chapter 9, uh, verses 13 um, through 28. And um, eight times in this section, the word blood appears. And, you, you know, you all, you all know that, that there's a whole lot of blood that gets shed across the pages of the Old Testament, right? Um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty bloody, particularly as you read from Exodus 21... 20 and 21, through the end of Exodus and into Leviticus, there's just a whole lot of, uh, a lot of uh, prescription about sacrifices and the shedding of blood. So there's, you know, there's a, 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 actually I think a good thing that the author of our little commentary does in spending just a, a couple of paragraphs talking about that fact, Um, the fact that uh, at the center of the worship of God in the Old Testament is sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And um, on page 100, um, he gives a, a kind of a, just sort of a summary definition of the significance of blood and the shedding of blood. Uh, He writes this, blood is therefore a shorthand term for atonement through substitution. It means deliverance from sin's curse and acceptance by God by means of a life offered to God in a penal death. Blood is therefore a shorthand term for atonement through substitution. I I mentioned... uh, in the sermon this morning, uh, made made reference to the Day of Atonement, which uh, is just one of those passages, Leviticus uh, 16, just one of those passages that uh, that focuses on uh, sacrifice and the shedding of blood. The two goats, the goat that is slain, um, obviously being the, the the where the blood comes from in that passage. And then I think last week I mentioned in the sermon, I, I, things all sort of run together, I think it was last week I mentioned, um, that on the Day of Atonement, maybe I mentioned it this morning again, that the priest lays his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confesses the sins of the people. And what you have there then is this, this visual depiction of this idea of imputation, the transferring of the sins of the people of God to a substitute, 
the substitute than bearing the sins of the people. And in that just incredibly dramatic imagery in Leviticus 16, the scapegoat bears the sins of the people away from the presence of God, carries the sins of the people uh, out into the wilderness where the, the right expectation is um, that he will die. Um, so I've, I've put some, some words up here, and again, these, these may be, I'm sure they're familiar to you, but, um, but there's a relationship uh, among all of these words that I think is, um, or there are relationships among all of these words that, um, that I think are, are valuable and helpful for us to keep in mind. Again, the shedding of blood, blood is a shorthand term for atonement through substitution. Um, and substitute, the substitute, of course, becomes the perfect goat, right? Jesus, who bears the sins of his people and, and as he bears the sins of his people, two things happen through that substitution. And the first of them is, is expiation, right? Who knows what expiation is? Removal, right? It's the removal of sin. Okay? On the Day of Atonement. Right, that's right. And then, um, and the, but the other thing that happens, these two things work together, is propitiation. What, what is propitiation? What does that have to do with? It has to do with appeasing or satisfying the wrath of God. Right? I mean, what, what is, what's, the big, what's the big problem? I mean, the really big problem for a human being. Sin. Even bigger than sin. Wrath. <laughs> wrath is the really big problem that sinful human beings have to face because of their sin. Right? How does, as, as Paul begins his exposition of the gospel and the application of his understanding of the gospel, the gospel that he preaches, how does he begin that exposition? Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Everywhere you find ungodliness, and those are two interesting terms. Um, ungod, they're not, they're not entirely, they're not synonymous. They're related to each other. Ungod, what does ungodliness mean? It's, it's in effect a denial of God, Right? It's interesting that Paul 
uses those terms in that, in that kind of connection. Ungodliness, the denial of God, what's the, what is the, and you can see it in Genesis as you read the story of Genesis, the unfolding story of sin and rebellion and all the consequences. What, what happens when God is rejected? Unrighteousness begins to proliferate and flourish. Ungodliness, the denial of God, the severing of one's connection to God, the throwing off of the rule and reign of God, the denying of the one true God will inevitably lead to unrighteousness. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, or sympatico. They just go together. Where you have one, you will have the other. And the wrath of God, Paul says, is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Their unrighteousness becomes the means by which uh, the, the, the predominating uh, influence, shaping influence in their lives that inclines and disposes them to suppress the truth. Now, why would that be the case? Why, why would unrighteous, ungodly and unrighteous people want to suppress the truth about God? Because the, the minute you allow the truth about, about God to percolate to the surface, where are you? Accountable before God for your ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the the problem, the real issue and problem that human beings face, yes, sin is a problem. But the problem, the really big problem that emerges as a result of sin is the wrath of God. The righteous, just indignation of a righteous and holy God against unrighteousness. Anything that that is a departure from his perfect holiness, anything that is a violation of his character. Now, you know, um, people don't like that, right? That's not good news for modern man, (laughs) right? People don't like that. What's interesting, and I I think I've said this before, I think you kind of know this in your bones. While people don't like to face the idea that a just, holy, and righteous God would be properly indignant with respect to ungodliness and unrighteousness, and because of his righteous indignation, would be disposed to deal with ungodliness and unrighteousness, applying a perfect standard of justice to every injustice, visiting the appropriate punishment upon the crime. While people don't like to hear that, they do have a notion, don't they? I mean, everybody does. And a longing, they have a notion of and a longing for justice. Right? Everybody wants to live in a world characterized by justice. We have a longing for it. But we don't like this idea that a perfectly holy and righteous judge will visit his just judgment upon every form of unrighteousness. But that's, what, that's where Paul begins his explanation of the gospel. And through chapter 1, you know, he, he sort of, in my opinion, I think he's, he's sort of exposing the corruptions, the bankruptcies, the... the 
the um, um, yeah, of, of, of general human culture. But then in chapter 2, he focuses on the Jews and exposes their particular form of ungodliness and unrighteousness. So that by the time he gets to chapter 3, um, he, in those first nine verses of chapter 3, um, says that both Jew and Gentile alike are under this wrath. So wrath is the problem, and you've got to do something about the wrath of God. You've got to satisfy the perfect justice, the perfect righteousness of God, and you've got to appease this wrath. If you don't, you're exposed to it. You're exposed to it, and everybody is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. So how does God deal with the pro- with how does God deal with the problem the issue of his own wrath? See, I mean this is this is I mean it's just really it's really stunning stuff. I mean Romans 5:8 God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners ungodly, unrighteous, exposed to this wrath, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Offering himself as the perfect substitute so that sin might be expiated, removed, and so that the wrath of God might be appeased. That's what happens at the cross. That's the significance of blood. A life given for lives, that blood shed, blood representing the life, but in that cross work, the wrath of God is fully satisfied appeased and satisfied. Um, and, and that's, you know, this is a, I mean, you know, when, well, um, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody preach a sermon on uh, the, the Matthew text. <clears throat> My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, I have. I remember early, fairly early in my Christian life, um, I heard someone either do a Bible study or do um, do a, um, it was a sermon or something. And in, in that Bible study or in that sermon, the person who was teaching or preaching said, it was at that moment that the father turned away from the son and abandoned him. And it was some, you know, it was some years later that I, that I, you know, I realized that that's really not the case. It's really not the case that the Father turned away from the Son. What happens at the cross is that the Father actually turns upon the Son. The Son now, as the sin-bearing substitute... expiating, propitiating, 
expiating the sins of the removal of the sins of the people and propitiating the wrath of God, the Father actually turns upon the Son and visits upon the Son the full measure of his wrath as a substitute. Right? I mean, there's a, there is certainly the sense in which Jesus is abandoned. I mean, he, he is the, to use the, the imagery, the, the picture of the Day of Atonement, he is led out into the wilderness, and he is abandoned there. That There is certainly that sense in which he is forsaken in that sense. But in the Old Testament, to be forsaken is to be cursed. It's not just to be left alone. If you're a cursed person, you would prefer just to be left alone. But forsakenness means that the curse of God is pronounced upon you. And so, and so Christ, as the substitute, shedding his blood, expiating the sins of his people, also propitiates the wrath of God, and so there is a perfect satisfaction made at the cross. Perfect satisfaction. What is satisfied? The justice of God is satisfied. Right? I mean, this is... I talk about this um, um, sometimes in the in the inquirer's class. This is not a Gerald Ford moment. When Gerald Ford stood between Richard Nixon and the prosecution of the case against him, right? This is not this is not interrupting the cosmic divine wheels of justice. This is not anything like it. This is God actually visiting the punishment that is appropriate commensurate to the crime upon the substitute so that the wrath of God is appeased and the justice of God is satisfied. So satisfaction because because of substitution, expiation, propitiation, satisfaction is just a, a huge idea. It's a huge idea. It is the reason that John that John can write this. You know, um, sometimes you have to learn to hate chapter divisions because they mess with the flow of things. All right? If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about that word just? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you realize that it would be an injustice in God if he failed to forgive the repentant sinner? Because he would be requiring from the repentant sinner payment for a sin that has already been paid for at the cross. It would be an injustice in God if he failed to forgive the repentant. We have one attorney here who we probably all know, what is that? If you require payment for a crime for which the payment has already been made. Double jeopardy. There's no double jeopardy. Right? No double jeopardy. 
Well, Glenn's not here. We've got other attorneys. Look out. Look out. All right? So, so now here, look. So, what, so, so, there, so there it is, all right? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And here's where I, I kind of hate the chapter break, right? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? You see, how, you see how grace becomes the motivation for moving in the direction of righteousness? I'm writing this so that you may not sin. But if, safe bet, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, deeply, deeply pastoral words. Right? If you, if you when I, not if, when I sin, my impulse is to do what? Run from God. What is John encouraging? Run to God. Because you have an advocate who has satisfied the wrath of God. And you have, you have nothing to fear in the presence of God when you sin. Isn't that stunning? You have nothing to fear when you sin. In your mind, in your heart, with your hands, with your feet, with your eyes, whatever. You have nothing. You may, you may have a lot to fear in the realm of the civil stuff. You, know, where we, you may have a lot to fear in terms of the church. You may have a lot to fear in terms of other people. They may pass judgment on you. They may cast you off. You have nothing to fear in the presence of this holy righteous and just God because he has satisfied his own justice, appeasing his own wrath in the cross of Christ, in the person of Christ. So substitution, expiation, the removal of sin, propitiation, the appeasing of the wrath of God, the satisfying of the justice of God, this is the stuff, these are the things, this is the basis for the foundation upon which justification rests. What is justification? It's a, de- it's a declaration of innocence, not guilty. Now, you know, as we sang this morning, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Justification is this declaration of innocence But with justification comes this clothing in the very righteousness of God. And that's all all of this, justification, declaration of innocence, um, being clothed in the righteousness of God, being positively accepted by God, all of this is based upon these, these ideas, this idea of substitution or the shedding of blood. And it's, I mean, folks, it is profoundly, moment-to-moment, existentially 
practical. This is practical theology. This is practical. This is the most this is the most practical you can ever get when it comes to biblical theology. Because what you need and what I need, what you want and what I want, I want a conscience that's free. Right? I want a conscience that's free. I want to be able to put my head on the pillow at night and sleep like a baby. And the place you go to get a cleansed conscience is to the blood, the substitute, by whose death sin is removed, the wrath of God is appeased, and God's justice is perfectly satisfied. That's, you know, that's why um, you know, Martin Luther, have you ever, have anybody have you read um, Here I Stand, Roland Bainton's biography of Martin Luther? It's, it's kind of a must-read, it's a classic, and, and Bainton quotes uh, Luther's, uh, Luther's own journals, that when he came to understand this idea of justification, he said it was like the windows of paradise opened up and the sun poured through. Conscience at rest, at peace. Okay. Because sin removed, wrath appeased, justice satisfied, all received as a free gift by faith and lived. I mean, you know, justification by faith isn't something you kind of move beyond. Say, so, okay, I got that one down. Now I can move on to the bigger stuff or the better stuff. There's nothing bigger, there's nothing better than this for you individually as one who is under the wrath of God because of your sin. So that, you know, that's just eight times in this section. Hebrews 9, 13 to 28, eight times there is reference to the blood being sprinkled here and the blood of the covenant, blood, 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 blood everywhere. What is it? Well, it's all about this. Okay. Yeah, Lori. Are you, are you asking me personally? Because you could represent the rest of us. Like, how do you perceive your own self then to God? Like, how is he looking at you? That there's yeah. all this garb and payment and all. But it's like, I would like the windows of heaven to open. Me too. Me too. Me too. Well, look, Lori, I mean, you heard, no, you didn't because you weren't here this morning, but um, I, I, I mean, others can comment on this. This to me is the fight of faith. This to me is the fight of faith. This is what the Christian life is all about. Because when I'm acutely aware of my, or, or, or even less than acutely aware, when I'm even nominally aware, but I'm aware of my, of my failings, whether from the past or in the present or whatever, that my, that my, what's my tendency? I mean, my tendency is to, is to move in the direction of self-loathing, self-condemnation, and then my tendency is, is, to, is to go try to secure my own righteousness. 
So the fight of faith is to say no to all of that and to say no, no, no. You've got to move in the direction of what you know to be true. You've got to move in the direction of what Christ has declared to be true about you, that his life, death, and resurrection really are sufficient for the totality of my sin, the entirety of my sin, what I know, what I don't know. I mean, don't you find it? I mean, you could, right, you could live the rest of your life in 1 John 1, verses 9 through 2, 2 3, 2, 2. Don't you find it wonderful that uh, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Which sins would he have in mind? Well, the ones that I've just confessed, right? But there's not a period there. He's, he, is, he is faithful and just not only to forgive the sins that I've confessed, he is faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Which I take to mean the stuff that I'm not aware of, but that is every bit as damning apart from Christ as the stuff that I know. So, I mean, that would be my answer. I just think this is the fight of faith. This, you know, there's this great thing. I, I, I do include this in the notes in the inquirer's class. Um, again, from, from Luther in his um, commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, where, where he really tries to work this stuff out in practical terms, and, and, he, and he envisions this conversation between you and Satan. The devil comes at you, and he begins to accuse you, and he lists all of the sins that should condemn you. And you say in response, but I am not condemned. And he says, no, you are condemned. And he says, no, I am not condemned. You are reminding me of the work of my Savior. Because every single one of those sins that you're bringing to my attention has been placed upon him. And he has died as the substitute, removing my sin, appeasing the wrath of God, satisfying the justice of God, so that I, devil, may slit your throat with your own knife. You accuse me of my sin, all you're doing is reminding me of my Savior. I mean, that was, that was Luther's fight. And I, so, you know, when I'm sitting in my, in my chair, in my living room, and I'm trying to read my Bible, and I'm, you know, my brain is going a thousand different directions at warp speed, and I'm, you know, again, falling on my face before God saying, please forgive me, I'm such a lout. Because I can't concentrate here, and I'm having a terrible time praying, and my tendency is to want to flee. The fight of faith is to rush to Jesus. Right? So that's, and, 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 and struggle to believe. It's, it's the fight of faith. But that's where, that's where the freedom, I believe, begins to come. That, that's, so, and, and it's this whole thing that I just, you know, the, the whole Peter series. Um, it, I really believe that through the days, weeks, months, years of Peter's life, Peter got smaller and Jesus got bigger. Right? Um, I think it was Charles Simeon. No, no, no. It was uh, uh, Robert Murray McShane. I think one of those guys said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I mean, if I become preoccupied with myself, I'm going to end up in the tank. 
But if I look at this stuff, make this stuff the focus of my attention, the center of my vision, that's when the freedom begins to come. So that, that I don't know, anybody else want to comment on this? Talk about this? Ask about this? Sure, yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish to everlasting life. There you go, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I got through letter A before a quarter to eight or seven or whatever time it is. But this is just, I mean, this is just hugely significant. I, 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 mean, I think this is hugely significant stuff. Any other comments about this? Or I mean, how how the how the rest of you deal with this? I'm not that good at this. I mean, hmm. Yeah, you struggle, don't you? I mean, don't you struggle to believe that it really could be true? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Alice's favorite verse. Really, I am that forgiven. I am that safe. I'm that secure. Now, you know, um, I mean, we, I, I spoke, maybe it would be appropriate to say this. To say that you are absolutely safe in the presence of God, that to say that you have absolutely nothing to fear in the presence of God. Um, to say, and, and, you know, we haven't even talked about adoption, the thing, you know, the justification being clothed in the righteousness of God. We haven't even talked about adoption. I'm not only forgiven, positively accepted, I'm a chi- I made a child. And I made an heir with Jesus, a co-heir with Jesus. That's the Isaiah 53 thing. He will divide the spoil among the many. Who's he going to divide the spoil among? His brothers and sisters. His brothers and sisters. The, the, the fruits of his conquest will be distributed lavishly upon his brothers and sisters. So, you know, we haven't even gotten to adoption, but to say, to say that I'm secure, to say that I'm safe, that I have nothing to fear in the presence of God, we need to remember that this is my Father who loves me and wants righteousness for me because he knows that righteousness is life. Um, I'm, I'm reading right now for probably the third time in the last 10 years. Peter Kraft's little, um, it's a kind of a thematic commentary on um, uh, the Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And I'm, and I'm reading right now his commentary on Job. And he talks about, it is so articulate and so clear, you have got to get this little book. It's not big. You can probably get it on your Kindle for $3.99 or something like that. Okay? Three Philosophies of Life. Peter Kreeft. K-R-E-E-F-T. And read the stuff on Job. Right? Three Philosophies of Life. Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Okay? And it's, again, it's a thematic commentary. And in Job, he, you know, he, he's wrestling, wrestles with the problem of evil. It's wonderful stuff. And, and then um, he wrestles with the problem of Job. 
There's the problem of evil, and then there's the problem of Job. And what is the problem of Job? The problem of Job is that while Job is described in the first verses of, of, the, letter, of the book as being a righteous, God-fearing man who is upright and all that kind of stuff, um, Job is a sinner. And God knows that righteousness means life for Job. And so how does, how does God secure life for Job? He beats the unrighteousness out of him. It's kind of the, it's, I, I don't like it. I don't want it. And you understand what I'm saying? He, I mean, how does, what does Job say when you get to the end of the book? I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent. Job was at a different place at the end of his massive suffering than he was at the beginning. So you ask, what's, what's, the, what's the problem with Job? Well, the problem with Job is that he isn't where God wants him to be and what God uses in Job's life to get Job to the place where Job himself really wants to be and needs to be is his suffering. It's discipline. It's correction, right? It's Hebrews 13 to get us, to get us back to Hebrews. <clears throat> that's it that's it there you go not, not 16 or 13 but uh, 12 um, in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Right? Simple deal here. You see somebody getting away with murder? They're not getting away with anything. If, if God lets you get away, be scared. You may not be a son. <laughs> right? So, and, I mean, you know, here's the, you know, the thing that comes to mind is Lucy's little interaction with Mr. Beaver and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Right? He's a lion? He's a lion. Well, is he safe? <laughs> no. But he's good. But he's good. So, and, and see here, here this is, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry, but what, what is it that, see, the thing I don't want to do, I'm afraid to look at my sin because I'm afraid of what the consequences would be if I looked at it. Well, what is substitution, expiation, propitiation, satisfaction telling me? I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to face the truth about myself. I don't have to be afraid to talk to my father and say, I don't like this. I know you don't like this. I don't want to suffer. Could you figure out another way to get, you know, <laughs> you know? 
But I don't have to be afraid to face the reality of my own sin because, because I'm secure and safe here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Lori. Yeah, sure. In other words, like the, the sin we keep dealing with, but it's not like a, a policeman. No. Or, or yeah. I think, that, I think we can have that confidence in him as a father yeah. without the wrath. Like yeah, yeah. Wrath is gone. Wrath is satisfied. Casts out all fear. Great, great, great reference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, good, good question. Uh, we, haven't, we didn't talk about imputation here, but um, obviously imputation is all over the idea of substitution, all right? So uh, imputation is this, it's a, it's a legal term. It's kind of an accounting sort of a term. It means to credit to the account of another, all right? So here, here's a wonderful picture of it. There's a wonderful picture of crediting to the account of another. It's Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? By, how is it that God was able to forgive our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's, that's, a, that's a, you know, a very poetic, graphic sort of way of describing imputation. Here, all of these... Um, all of this record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands, what has God done? He's taken every one of those accusations and he has nailed it to the cross on the substitute, Jesus. He has imputed it to Christ so that it becomes Christ's record and Christ bearing that sin as the substitute, the sin being removed, wrath propitiated, Justice satisfied, now I can stand declared innocent and positively righteous. So that's imputation. That's right. And somebody said something to me on the way out this morning. Doesn't that imputation thing work both ways? And it does work both ways. There is a double imputation. There is the imputation of my sin to Christ, and there is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to me. So that his record is now my record so that I can stand in the presence of God, not presumptuously, obviously, profoundly, gratefully, I can stand in the presence of God and say, your son's record of perfect righteousness belongs to me. That's imputation. Impartation, the impartation of righteousness is is the work of the Spirit in making real in my life 
beginning with regeneration and continuing through the process of sanctification until final glorification, making real in my life the righteousness that I have because I am in Christ. He is, after all, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in me brings with him his very character. And that righteous character, through this process of sanctification, gets worked out across my life and is, and is brought to completion when I'm glorified. So that's, that is imparted righteousness. And it really is imparted, right? The ground of my acceptance with God, this is a big distinction that, that the reformers kind of worked through. The ground of my justification is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not the imparted righteousness brought to me. That's, that's imperfect. That's mixed and imperfect. It's not a sufficient, adequate ground for my acceptance with God. My acceptance with God is the imputed righteousness of Christ, his perfect record. But then that righteousness, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, gets worked out in my life. Is that imputed Clayton, Zach, is that, 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 am I okay? Am I on safe footing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and yeah. From the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, yeah, right. Right, yeah. But the declaration comes prior to, or, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. The, the, the declaration, my justification, that, that is the ground, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ, finished, you know, all of this stuff is the ground of my acceptance with the Father. But I am, I am under construction. I'm, I am being renewed. It's progressive, yeah. So the, yeah, the process of sanctification, yeah. Wow. It's never done, huh? Yeah, yeah, and, and of course, what he is most satisfied in is Jesus, is his son. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, yeah, so, yeah, so that, that's, that's, you're right, I mean, that's actually kind of the out, and this is where the reformers. This is where we differ with Roman Catholicism, because because the whole sacramental system 
is the means by which that grace continues to be imparted so that there is acceptance. I mean, that whole, that whole deal. But, it, but yeah, I see what you're saying. It's kind of never, it's never done. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Well, you know, you know, at at a practical level, we 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 can become that. But but I mean, I interrupted you. But I mean, what? Right. Yep, self-salvation, self-salvation, yeah, yeah, which doesn't work. No, it does not work. Yeah. I'd like to say something about what Zach's saying here. Maybe you clear it up. My understanding in the Catholic masses at some point is is what's happening is that the priest is taking Christ out of a box, putting him on a table, <laughs> slaying him again, which of course is absolute yeah. foolishness. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's the the. The resacrificing, yeah. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that for us, Ray. <laughs> All right. Um, we will. Um, there's more I'd like to just say about this. We'll we'll just do it. We'll do it next week. Okay. We've slowed down, Frank. Let me pray. It's seven o'clock. Lord. Um, uh, please, uh, as we've been reminded um, this evening, please, um, because we are so weak and frail, uh, again and again, um, give us the grace that we need to believe, uh, to trust your word. Um, you, you have said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, you have said that those who have been justified have peace with you. Uh, Lord, um, help us to believe that so that our consciences can be at rest, uh, so that we can uh, more and more move in the direction freely um, of the righteousness that you call us to without being haunted and plagued by uncertainty. So put our hearts at rest, and and thank you for some time this evening just to think about these things again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.